We're going to turn our Bibles to 1 Peter, as you see in the, uh, the bulletin. Our text is there. Tell the message is called just simply redeemed. Could be a lot of different things, but it's called redeemed. <clears throat> and in 1 Peter chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 17 to 21 is where our text is this morning. And if you can turn there, I will allow you to read your own translation. That's fine. And in that way, you can glean additional things because when you hear one and you hear another and, 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 and read from another or different translations, you can really uh, pick up on a lot of different things and see some consistencies and some maybe newer uh, translations that help to understand a little more clearly. So I just encourage you to open whatever translation you have and, and follow along as you read this text. First Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. The Apostle Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, simply means that God doesn't show favoritism, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, and in a more accurate word is aliens. You're strangers. You're aliens. You're just passing through. You don't belong here. You're, you belong somewhere else on a different planet. <laughs> For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. In verse 19, he says, But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm familiar with, and there are, some, there are some in this church, or there were some in this church, if, I don't know if they still keep it up, but there are a couple that like to go to yard sales. Anyone like yard sailing? Antiquing, whatever. There we go. It's, yeah, some, some do it. I know Trish doesn't want to admit it. That's okay. Um, I know Pastor Mike and Melissa, they love to go and check out yard sales and find a bargain or find something they can clean up. And, you know, but I know a lot of people do that. And why do they do that? They go around and it's like a treasure hunt almost. Because what they can do, like that last song that we sang, they're able to see what no one else can see in an item. Right? And oftentimes, uh, some of the folks that I've talked to, they go and they find this rickety old, dirty, nasty looking chair. And they look at it and they're like, three bucks? I'm taking that. They negotiate, they make an offer, whatever. All right, two fifties, I'll give you two fifty. You want three? I'll give you two or two fifty. Whatever. They get it, they walk away, they see so much value in that. And they love to the idea that they, that that what is there before their eyes can be something so much more. Not only to their eyes, but in its use and in its function, amen, that that can happen. So garage sales, estate sales, yard sales, people go through that. And you know what? You come across that and they buy it, take it home, and then they convert it into something of value to them anyway, right? They always do that. And even sometimes what they buy can take on a whole new life. They make a new use for it or out of it, amen? Some people have done that as well. And, and these previously, if you could look at it this way, these condemned sale items, they're neglected, they're left alone, they're not wanted, they're just put off. They're, they become something very attractive, whether it's a decoration or it's retro furniture that they refinish or just artistic knickknacks. I'm not a knickknack guy, but if you're into that, that's what they become. They become a talking piece. And all they needed, 
All these items needed in that yard sale, that garage sale, was for someone to see the value in them. That's all they needed. Make the purchase, even if they negotiated, but they made the purchase, they paid that price, and then bring them back to their previous beauty. Restore them. Right? Jesus did the same thing when he purchased us with his blood. He really did. And I find that to be very powerful for, for me personally. And when I look around at, for, for you and for others that he loved so much, he saw us where we were. And he saw what we could become and the beauty in us that he would make in restoring us, cleaning us up. We couldn't clean ourselves up, right? But he cleaned us up. And every one of us was already on that, that if I could put it that way, that eternal trash heap. We were condemned. The Bible says that, that the wages of sin is death in Romans chapter 6 and that we're all sinners, and we were, we were destined to be there because of our condition, because of where we were. We were left there. We were used by the enemy, used by sin, neglected. We were and seemingly no value, but God sees the value in our worn out, damaged lives because of what sin did. He has chosen us. He purchased us with Christ's shed blood so that he can restore and transform us into something of infinite worth. Amen? And in a similar way, in a fashion, uh, redemption, and, and Peter talks about this here in chapter 1 of his epistle, the first epistle, or this buying back. He speaks of what Christ has done for us. And Christ has paid the price to purchase us back out of our slavery to sin, self, and Satan. Amen? He's done that. The Bible teaches us that. The price of our redemption communicates to us that colossal value that God places on us. We are so valuable to God. So valuable. And Peter spends the first portion of chapter 1 as a, as a reference and a context for you, addressing the amazing salvation that believers have received, have been given. And then in verses 13 to 16, he addresses how believers should live differently than the world in holiness. He then carries this thought out in verse 17. And in your Bible, you'll see that it says, either it says, since you call on, or and. Some of the translations, and. It links it back to the thought that was before. That he carries out this concept of being bought by Jesus. And because Jesus saved us, we ought to live differently. And so because we know that, now this is what we do. Knowing that we were, and he goes on. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. In other words, what he's saying is, use carefully the brief time that you have on earth with reverential fear of God. The God who redeemed you. And Peter reminds them of four truths regarding their redemption. And it's so important for us to take note of these four truths that I see here in this text that I think Peter is reminding them of. First of all, in verse 18, Peter reminds them of the purpose of redemption. What's the purpose of redemption in the first place? Yes, we understand by redemption, it is to pay a ransom, to buy back something, to pay the price to get back or to release someone out of someone else's care. And in this case, out of bondage, out of slavery. You know, when we think of this word as Christians, if you've been a Christian, you read the Bible, 
It's a theological term. And when we start talking about, oh, theological terms, sometimes we're like, yeah, whatever, I don't want to find out, or we get intimidated by certain words or whatnot. But redemption is a pretty simple concept to grasp. If I, not to oversimplify, but it really is a pretty simple concept to grasp. And you know what? It carried a special meaning to all the audience and to the people that Peter is writing to and all the people in that world that he was writing to. It carried special meaning because there were all kinds of slaves that were, that were, and, and types of slavery that were happening in the first century. I don't know how many. I don't know to what extent. It's debatable. You look at history. But many slaves became Christians and eventually they fellowshiped in the local assemblies. You know, a slave could purchase his own freedom if he could collect sufficient funds. Um, good luck. Or if his master sold him to someone who would pay the price that was demanded and then set him free. Redemption was a rare and precious thing for a slave. To redeem means, as I said, to set free by paying a ransom price, to release a ransom by payment. And we must never forget the slavery of sin. And Paul addresses that in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, as well as throughout the New Testament. In his epistles, Paul, Peter, the apostles address this idea of slavery to sin. Do you remember the history? Moses urged Israel to remember that they had been slaves in Egypt in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and chapter 16 and chapter 18 throughout all the time reminding them. And the generation that died in the wilderness forgot the bondage that they were in when they were in Egypt and they wanted to go back. We've heard that and we're familiar if we know the story. But there's that idea of being redeemed, being brought out, being brought through, and coming out of slavery. And not only did we, did we as people without Christ, live a life of slavery, but it was also a life of emptiness. And that's the purpose, because we'd be redeemed out of this life of slavery to sin, a life of living with the old nature, the dead nature, the, the, the dead Bob Geruda didn't know God living in this cycle of being bound by sin. And, but it was also because it was a life of emptiness. That was the purpose of redeem, redeem us from emptiness and bring f- uh, fullness and a purpose and meaning to our lives. And the word in this, in this uh, uh, scripture, translated as aimless in a Greek word, means vain or empty. And it's the word which Paul also uses to describe the wisdom of this world as opposed to godly wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Peter used it in describing the aimless or the empty way of life handed down to them from their forefathers in our verse here. At that time, these people thought that their lives were all full and happy, that they had it all made, and they were really empty and valueless really in the end. And in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4 of this first epistle, if you want a further explanation of what he means by what the forefathers passed on to you, read those four verses. Unsaved people, people who are not redeemed by God, are also blindly living on empty substitutes. One of the greatest substitutions for what God wanted, or that people had, in place of what God wanted for them and desired for them, was all their traditions that they passed on. And this has a reference to the Jewish, what they passed on, their religious life. 
passing on all these laws, all these decrees, things they were adding, the rabbis, the religious teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees in the New Testament, all, so on and so forth. They were passing this on, and by so doing, they, their value system was based on everything that was contained in all these rules, all these laws that started off good after God gave it to Moses, and then from then on, they added and distorted. They were passing this out, and the end result was emptiness. It got them nowhere, and it showed that without Jesus, without a Redeemer, without a Savior, it's all futile. There's nothing there. Nothing there. What are some of the things that have been passed on to you? They've been modeled for you, and they're good things. I can list them, but I I won't, because I don't want to sound, but they're, in the end, they're empty, because all that matters is Jesus and being reconciled to God through him. One generation only passes on to the next temporary things of life. I mean, even even memories. After a generation or two, maybe three, I hate to say it because I don't want to be a donor and I don't want to discourage anyone, but when we lose a loved one or a friend, we always say their memory will live on forever. Listen, I'm I'm not mocking that. Please don't understand me. We do. As long as we're alive, we, we do. They, they're there. We remember them. But I'm telling you, they don't last forever. And they become empty. In fact, they, they vaporize. I'm not being negative. I'm, it's the truth. And there's a, there's, a, there's a truth here as well. And it's a, a parallel here because the things we pass on from memories to practices, to, if they don't include Christ or if they're not Christ, they're empty, void, and meaningless in the end when it relates to eternity. Again, I'm not suggesting things we pass on have no value at all. But in the end, for eternity, they can provide a false sense of security. And these things motivated Solomon, who was one of the richest men who ever lived. And he wrote in Ecclesiastes 12.8, we know what he said in the end. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Oh, if God's people only saw what they were doing in the Old Testament with all their rules and regulations and their traditions they were passing on that left God on the sideline, they should have learned that. We, though we have been redeemed from the futile conduct which focuses merely on this life, whether we knew it or not, we traded in a lifestyle that had only empty pleasures and dead-end desires to offer us. We were in bondage to our impulses, unable to help ourselves, the Bible teaches us. And the only way for us to be, if I could use the word, emancipated, was for someone to redeem us out of it. And the ransom price was paid By Jesus Christ, God's only Son. The purpose of redemption was to free us from the slavery of sin and from the traditions and all the things, the vainless things passed on from our forefathers. And let me summarize, it comes right back to slavery. We all inherited the DNA of our forefathers, which was laced with sin. All of us. And in the end... It amounts to emptiness. Secondly, Peter reminds not only the purpose of redemption, but the price of redemption in verse 19. Verse 19, he points out that we have not redeemed, been redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Peter uses an example of what corruptible and what is, what is corruptible and what is 
imperishable, in an exaggerated sense, if you will. We think of gold and silver as being examples of the more permanent things in our world. Maybe some people do, I guess. But for example, gold and silver coins can be passed on for generations. But even gold and silver, I mean, has anybody had, I I have, and I don't don't really care, so whatever, everyone has their own interests. When you have silver, like, spoons and table with flatware and plates and all that passed on, you leave it sitting there, what happens? Yeah, yeah, it needs some help. It doesn't last forever. Yes, I realize the element is there, I realize silver is there, but it, over time, it gets broken down. Even gold, it will break down. You give it a, a long, long time, it will start breaking down and it will start, things will start happening to it. It won't last forever. It doesn't last forever. And so he says here, you weren't bought with things like that. You, he says, in comparison to eternity, Peter states that they're corruptible, they're temporary, these things. But our salvation has not been bought with the corruptible or the temporary, which ultimately perishes. Our salvation is bought with the eternal and that which is so precious and that all the gold and the silver in the world could never purchase it. Not even the platinum, because isn't that expensive too? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His death purchased our ransom. That was the only thing. And Peter not only reminded them of what they were, but he reminds them of what Christ did. The price of redemption. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Now it sounds so crude to some people and barbaric, the idea. But Peter doesn't look at it that way. He looks at the blood of Jesus. And he says it's precious. Oh yeah, it's gross. What he went through. Oh yeah, it's it, and grotesque. And it's, and it's, you want to turn away. I mean, if you talk about people who have phobias about having, you know, going to the phlebotomist and they get their blood drawn and they pass out or they get all sweaty and they, they, and they get they're freaked out. Talk about, talk about what Jesus went through or, or think of and look at what Jesus, look at him, what he did, the price he paid. Precious. Why was his blood precious? Because, I mean, he was the Lamb of God that came. And, and he died for the sins of the world. But it's because he was God himself. And he was his incarnation who walked on this earth is precious that he left his glory and he walked here among men. And even then he came for the purpose to shed that blood that he himself paid the ransom for you and for me, that price that was so steep, his own life. We think that he was murdered or killed, but he gave himself up for you, the Bible says. He wasn't killed. He willingly paid the price. He willingly gave up his life for you and for me so that we could live forever, be reconciled to God and live forever. We were bought with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus shed his blood to purchase us out of the slavery of sin and to set us free forever. 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 Sometimes we don't live with that mindset. He set us free. He ransomed us forever. Get that in your heads, in your heart, in your spirit. Forever. He did that once and for all, Hebrews tells us, his sacrifice. Innocent blood shed in death refers to atonement, an Old Testament concept where sacrifices were made. The blood of Christ was violently shed at the cross and the shedding of Christ's blood resulted in sacrificial death. It was offered on behalf 
of you and me, on sinners, on people who are at the garage sale, who were used by sin and the devil and this world and left there for nothing. And Jesus saw us there and he says, what's the price? And there was no price except he said, I'll give my life to get them back. The innocent life's blood was poured out in sacrificial death to atone for our sin and for us being sinners and enslaved to sin. What a price. And when we think about that, we should be overwhelmed and awed and just filled with gratitude and thanks. And to redeem, by setting free by paying a price, a slave could be freed with the payment of money, as I mentioned earlier, but no amount of money could ever set a lost sinner free, ever. Only Jesus. In calling Jesus a lamb, Peter is reminding the readers, and he reminds us, again, of that Old Testament teaching that was very important in the early church. And I hope that we don't forget it. and We remind ourselves often of how important it is. And it's that doctrine of substitution, that the innocent victim gives his life for the guilty and ransoms them. And it begins in Genesis chapter 3, if you want to really understand, where that doctrine of sacrifice and where atonement comes in and where redemption comes in ultimately and salvation. When God killed animals that he could clothe Adam and Eve to cover their shame and their guilt, he provides the sacrifice from the beginning. The ransom was paid by someone else, by God. He initiated, he did it. And what about in Genesis chapter 2 where the ram died for Isaac when he's on that, he's on the altar with the, with the knife drawn by his father and God stops him and he hears the ram caught in the thickets, in the bushes. And the sacrifice was provided by God himself, the substitute. And there's a substitute Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. We're aware of that story. And where for each Jewish household, and then they took, and we know the story as well, where the blood was spread on the doorpost of their house and the angel of death passed over. The Messiah was presented as an innocent lamb in Isaiah chapter 53, who died for sins and he was the appropriate and satisfying substitutionary sacrifice. Abraham's son Isaac asked the question, as I said, where is the lamb? And John the Baptist answered it. In John chapter 129, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, when he looked at Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. And shockingly, if I could say it that way, we've been redeemed by the very blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our Lord. And therefore, in heaven, Revelation 5, 11 and 14, it says that the redeemed and the angels sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and praise. When God looks at our forgiven sins through the blood of the crucified one, Jesus, our Savior, we look pure and white. We're reminded of this always in our sermons here at the church and in our studies. We're reminded of this. For the precious blood of our redemption was offered by the Lamb of God without blemish and without spot. He's the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb was sacrificed and his blood was placed, as I mentioned, over the doorpost. But Jesus was the last sacrificial lamb and when you apply, when his blood is applied to the doorpost of your heart, man, that payment of death is seen and death passes over. You've been ransomed, you redeemed, and it was a steep price 
for your redemption that Peter reminds. Thirdly, Peter reminds them of the plan of redemption. In verse 20, he says that Jesus was foreordained to be our Redeemer before the foundation of the world. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. That's what he writes. Verse 20. He has appeared in these last times for you. Man, that's as personal as it gets. He valued and loved you all along so much, even while you were a sinner. He saw that. He already knew, but he died for you. Christ's sacrifice for our sin was not an afterthought. And this payment for sin was planned before the creation of the world. Listen, I don't know. I cannot clearly, I don't care what anyone says, any theologian will not clearly and perfectly articulate to you what that means and how that was. It just was. God knew it along way before creation, before any atoms came together at God's command. In fact, before any atoms were created, God already had a plan of redemption, salvation, to reconcile man to himself. He already had that. He already knew that. It was, it was set in motion by all, the all-knowing eternal God long before everything came into existence. And while the plan was in the mind of God from eternity past, way back, and it was not made known until the fullness of time came, Paul said in Galatians 4.4. 4. And that time came when Jesus walked on this earth. He was born and walked on this earth and he went up on that cross. Now the prophets, and, Paul, and Peter talks about them earlier in chapter 1, they searched for this Redeemer, and they wanted to know, and even angels, they were wondering, what is this salvation, and who is this Jesus that's coming? What is this amazing salvation all about? And they wanted to know the time. They wanted to be a part of it. But they couldn't. They could foretell it. And they searched to, for the remedy to that human condition of slavery to sin and bondage to all the traditions of our forefathers as a result of sin. But it was revealed for mankind's sake through the incarnate Jesus who walked on this earth. God came near and made himself known to us through Jesus. And that makes salvation very personal. And the purpose of Christ coming into the world was to save us individually and eternally. Peter made it clear that Christ's death was an appointment. It wasn't an accident. For it was ordained by God before the foundation of the world, as he said. And from the human perspective, our Lord was cruelly seized and murdered. But listen, again, he laid down his life for sinners, as he said about the good shepherd who lays down his life for a sheep in John chapter 10. And then he was raised from the dead. Now, anyone who, who trusts him will be saved for eternity. Have you trusted him? I've trusted him. You know, someone said, I can't remember where I read this, but somebody said that the cross was not this ambulance where the sirens are going and, and making all kinds of noise and it's speeding down the highway to an accident scene. That's not what the cross is. God knew all along that you and I would need a Savior, that we'd need a Redeemer. He didn't panic and react and all of a sudden put on the sirens, send down the cross, set it up, make, that's it, make an alarm, it's coming, salvation's coming. He knew all along that we needed a Redeemer. That was his plan. And Peter reminds us of that in verse 20, that there was a plan of redemption. And finally, and fourthly, Peter reminds his readers and reminds us about the proof 
of redemption. What's the proof of redemption? I mean, what is, what is the evidence that, ex- that a redemption actually happened? Oh, let's put it, make it more personal. That you have actually, that you actually are redeemed. You know what he says here in verse 21? Look at what he says right in our text. It's all in the text. For through him, you believe in God. Let me just start there just for a second. For through him, through his sacrifice, through his cross, through the redemption, the, the price that he pays, because redemption is all about the cost of salvation. Salvation's big, it's amazing, there's a lot of concepts. But it's the starting point, it's the cost that's associated with salvation. And he says, through him, you believe in God. Why? Because you've come to know and accept that he paid the price for you and he bought you back and you, you now see the way that God sees and you realize who you are in him and that he has a plan and a hope and a future for you. And so we actually have belief in God, not only in our minds intellectually and rationally, but in our heart of hearts and our spirits. We believe in God. And that is directly connected to what he says in the second or the third part of the verse. When he says, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, he says, and so your faith and your hope are in God. That is a proof that you have been redeemed. Because before you're redeemed, before you're bought back, you are hopeless, you're in despair, you're on a road to an eternity without God, to damnation, to hell, and it's over, destruction. And there's no hope but despair. And you have no faith in God. You don't believe in Him. You don't put your trust in Him. But when you come to God through Jesus... And you've been redeemed because he's bought you back. The proof of that redemption is that you not only believe in God, but you actually have faith and hope, which really means you trust God through and through all the time. And because of that trust, you have a living hope. And Paul talks about that when he talks about what we got in salvation. It's a gift in salvation that God doesn't take back by giving you that hope. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 11. It has that it has everything to do where God doesn't repent of his calling and salvation has everything to do with the salvific aspect of what God is talking about. That is what it's about. He doesn't take back his salvation. He doesn't take back the gifts, which are the benefits of that salvation. It's irrevocable. That means that all the benefits you get, the peace, the forgiveness, the salvation, it's all there. The hope, the joy, it's all there. Are you going to live in it? He offers that to you. And that's the proof of our redemption. Through Jesus, we have come to believe in God and we are saved and set free from the penalty of our sin by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, of course, and we're released from sin's power. Man, I don't, look, I, I don't care about pasts and what, how colored they were or what they were. We're all sinners. And when I think about who I was, regardless of how good I may have thought or you may have thought you were or how bad you may have thought or how bad I... To know the fact that we were put on the shelf, so to speak, and Jesus saw us and he paid the price to get us back with his own life, his own blood. Man, that moves me and it just makes me... I don't even know what's... I have nothing to say except thank you. And I don't know why, but thank you. That you see something in me of value and worth and you're making me and you redeem me and you've given me belief in God and a trust that includes faith and hope. And one day I know because of our redemption in Christ, we will also be free from the present sin that we're surrounded with and that we battle with in heaven above. And this faith and hope in ours are ours because our God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. It's a fact. It's true. 
Peter knew the significance of this resurrection and he knew the joy of the resurrection when he ran to see Jesus at the tomb and, whoa, he's not there. Can you imagine the joy? I mean, actually disbelief at first, but then the joy sets in when he realizes. And he knew because he preached after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he talked about this and that whole experience, how we have that hope and how he laid down his life. He says, well, he was put down by the Jewish people and all the others. And he says, but God raised him and we have hope in him. And the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God in whom we believe. His power is available to us today as we trust in Christ Jesus and as we submit and allow the Holy Spirit to live in us and through us. It's not just belief in God and that trust that comes from faith and hope, but here's the last thing, and I love this one. And it goes back to verse 17, the first verse in our text. Because if, we, if there's any evidence or proof that we've been redeemed. It's that Peter says in verse 17, because now we call on him as Father, the one who judges impartially. We call him Father. Before we were redeemed, before we were bought back and ransomed, the ransom price was paid, man, who was our father? He wasn't much of a father. He was a slave master. Sin and the devil. That was not a fight. But then we were redeemed and he bought us back. We can do what Peter says and we are freely do that because of our belief and our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus. We call him Abba Father, as Paul says in Romans 8, because his spirit lives in us. He bought us back and he filled us. And we have that beautiful, personal, warm, embracing, endearing, corrective, loving Father in heaven, who will never leave us, who bought us back, and because he valued us so much, why would he renege? Why would he go back on that? He doesn't put us back on the shelf or put us back out there at the yard sale waiting for someone else to buy us. He keeps us forever because he values us like we can't even begin to imagine in one t- and with the fullest of our minds. May we never forget that we call him Father, and that's the proof of our redemption. And so now we live holy, and we honor God the Father. And our redemption is the highest motive, isn't it, for godly living? Peter recalls to his readers' minds the astonishing act, as we already discussed, that purchased their salvation, our salvation. And it's a reminder that we regularly need. Now I'm going to ask the ushers to come forth, and we'll receive communion. Remembering what our Lord has done for us and what it cost him is why the Lord's table was instituted. That's why. Our redemption price was literally beyond the value of anything in all God's creation combined. It's a redemption price so great that only God himself could pay it. Don't forget it. Bob, Don't forget that. Each of us, let's not forget. I'm going to ask the ushers to begin serving, and as they are, I'm going to remind us with Paul's words the importance and why we have communion. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The apostle Paul said that he received from Jesus, who instituted this with his disciples in the upper room, the Last Supper, I should say. And Paul said that, I pass on to you what Jesus Gave to me. That on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said that we should eat it. And in the same way that 
we take the cup and we remember that he gave thanks and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. The blood shed for you. And Paul said that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. You know what we do? We proclaim that the price has been paid. Oh, man. Price has been paid. Ransom taken care of. Jesus died for us. We proclaim the Lord's death. And we know we can proclaim his death. And there's a ransom because he's alive. And he took us back and now he's with us and he keeps us. Amen. Amen. So just contemplate that for a moment. And then we'll, we'll participate together and eat together of the bread and the cup.